Welcome to the Conversations with Anna podcast. My name is Dr. Anna Stump, the Golden Ticket Professor, a self-proclaimed edutainer. I'm a former business executive turned high school teacher turned college professor. And in the past three decades of that transition, I have spent time with several generations. And with that as my foundation, I have some stories to tell. In each episode, you'll hear stories or interviews that will help you focus on your own truth. I want you to feel accepted, motivated, supported, and then I want you to be able to take what you know about yourself and your truth, go out into this big old world we live in and apply that so you can move forward with a strategy for a more authentic life. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's jump in to a conversation with Anna. It's early in the day, so much I want to do. I dedicate today to breaking rules. I'm gonna stick to a strategy. I'm gonna find out exactly what I'm made of. Is there really something wrong with just smiling the whole day long? Hello, and welcome to this expanded conversation with Anna. This is a very long episode. I'm experimenting here. I wanted to leave this in its entirety rather than try to split it into two episodes because I think it just flows well. This is a conversation with Dr. Ray Sylvester, who is one of my very best friends, who has been one of my most inspirational colleagues. He is a very complex, brilliant, deep and spiritual person. He has a PhD in personal brand. He has a very diverse background. He and I are going to talk about all of that in this conversation, plus much more. You will find that he is just truly inspirational to be around all the time. So I hope that you enjoy this new expanded version. I'll be anxious to get your feedback on that. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I am not sure how I would introduce you. That's I've been thinking about that because I, I, um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, probably the best colleague I've ever had, one of the best friends I've ever had, one of the most inspirational people in terms of just kind of my truth when I think about like how I've gotten to this point over the last five years. Um, I laugh about the fact that you're, you have top billing in my dissertation <laughs> comments, right? For very good reason, because you were a big part of how I got to that. But yeah, I don't even know how I would describe you um, because you fit into so many facets of my life and who I am and kind of just a, a lot of things. So um, I do think you're not only one to help me land on my dissertation topic and a lot of other things, but you also helped me land on doing the podcast, naming the podcast, and a lot of other things. So um, I think I would just call you my inspiration in life, maybe. Is that too deep? Well, I can only say I feel incredibly humbled by that type of introduction. And I already know that I'm going to fail to live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> so not true. Um, but I feel like I kind of stole our synergy because it's really our conversations. Even when we work together year after year, semester after semester, we did not get to spend enough time in each other's physical presence 
in my opinion, you might think we did, but um, to the point our families haven't even been together. Like we don't have physical closeness. Like no, we do speak a lot on the phone. These, yes. These conversations. So I think that was kind of what was easy to help you land on what I should call this podcast, because I think it's these conversations that you and I have that we always seem to walk away with something mutually inspirational, motivational, kind of grounding those types of things. Is that way for you or is it just me? Yeah. Yeah. When we spoke about your podcast, um, my natural inclination was conversations with Anna because that's what, that's what I have is conversations with Anna. And I've watched right. you uh, with students and engage them. I've watched you in different settings and you in you, your, your powerful gift is your ability to engage and, and conversation is the core of engagement. Um, so few people really have real conversations. So you're a good listener um, and you're a good contributor. So that combination is really good. It's funny you say I'm a good listener. I'm glad you feel that way because I feel like I'm, I try so hard to listen and to understand and to process, but I'm super guilty of listening to respond sometimes. But I'm going to take you – I mean, you're – one of the most brilliant people I know. So if you say I'm a good listener, then I'm a good listener. Well, I, I saw you on your journey um, as a professor and, and the fulfillment of your terminal degree, which looked like a mountain at one stage. And then you just, it was just, just a little bump in the road. Once you knew where you were going, there was no one stopping you. So I think that would, that was a critical integration of listening. I think in my conversations with you, I know you always listening to your husband, Kevin, and even your son, Jack, because you make reference to their comments. So you do hear things. I think, I do. You're right. I, I think if there's any toxicity that exists in a, a conversation with someone, that's where you're more likely to be cautious. So you're very much a wholehearted person. So you throw yourself in. And if you think someone's not doing that, you become cautious. And I, I've, we've witnessed that. I've talked about it, and I just think that's your truth. If you think that something's is, inauthentic, right. you struggle in that conversation. But it takes the awareness to know that that's the one thing that you think is your thing or your hang-up or the thing you need to watch. I think that comes with that intentionality. Yeah, I think um, my wife always says this. It's the, it's the kind of talk where you see someone and they say, oh, we must do dinner sometime, but you know they have no intention of organizing that dinner. That's the type of person I think that you just naturally question. The question mark pops up in your mind and you say, hmm, what's the point of spending too much time investing in that? And and it's a, it's a hot topic because actually we're called and we, we met each other at a small Christian college. We're called to love on everyone. But our own weaknesses, our own fallibilities, our own brokenness is how do you love on someone when you get the sense they're not invested? Oh, well, isn't that what I was known for as a professor? Like, don't go talk to Stump because she will real talk you. Yeah, or yeah. they knew I loved them, but it wasn't always easy love, right? Like, yeah. I, to your point, when somebody says, let's do dinner, I'm more apt to look at them and go, well, when you mean that, let me know. But I don't think, right? I call people on that, which is, again, it's like I read in that Enneagram passage, what I consider passage or passion other people find to be extremely intimidating. And I think sometimes because of how I just put it out there, it is intimidating to people. But I think that, that in a sense makes us kindred spirits because um, I always encourage people 
um, say if they've got a LinkedIn presence and they want to expand, then, you know, encourage recommendations. And um, I also encourage people to look at the recommendations. So in other words, they're looking at their life from another's perspective. Um, when I've done that myself, um, it's both humbling, but you see the themes and the threads that you may not even be cognizant about yourself. So one of mine from students is, Ray will not let you feel comfortable. He wants to stretch you. But to me at the core, I think the, the ethos of education is to be stretched. It's not, oh. it's not a comfort zone. So moving to Indiana four years ago, and for those of you that are just catching up, I don't have an American accent. So just to qualify. So I'm from London, England. Um, I, I identified and I went around the schools. My wife and I were looking. Um, we ended up at uh, a school district that we thought was the most similar to our experiences in England. And this is for your four children that you also moved to yes. a different continent. Yeah. So we arrived with um, the six of us and we arrived with 12 pieces of luggage. Um, truth be known, probably a little, I had more proportion than others because I think I spread a load of books across the 12 pieces of luggage. So um, and my wife said we'd be overweight when we got to the airport and we were, but I, I smiled to the, the person we were checking in and they let our, um, cumulative six pounds or seven pounds overgo. Um, and she was convinced we'll be fined. Um, and yeah, that's another story. So yeah, we arrived with that, but in the schools, one thing that really struck me was the school, uh, district. I'm not even sure whether I should say which one is. I'm just going to say the school. I'll leave that to you to say if you want to, Anna. <laughs> um, but they said that there was a challenge that, um, there was a, a system that was used in education in Indiana, which in a sense, my interpretation, and this is my limited interpretation, it was one to bring up standards. So the, the ethos was great. But what it did in a sense was it encouraged the uh, consumption of pockets of information and then the regurgitation at strategic times when there was a test. But what it didn't really encourage in the same level was uh, criticality, problem solving. Um, now, when you look at what employers want, and when I think about golden ticket, the first thing you do, you have to confront yourself and say to yourself, who am I? What do I want to do? And there's criticality and there's problem solving all the way through the propositions you talk about, Anna. So mm -hmm. my question is, how do you move forward without actually looking yourself in the mirror and going, how do I overcome? How do I get out of my own way? And how do I overcome the challenges that I may perceive there? Because sometimes those challenges are just perceived. Oh, or yeah, from from your lens. I talk a lot about your lens, right? Yep. If you aren't really aware of what's on it and how you're viewing the world, then you wouldn't challenge those things. Yeah. And I think you, you you hit on some things in that story that you just told. I think one thing that made you makes you, I don't mean to say that in past tense, but makes you so important in the classroom in higher education in the United States is that you push back on these students about having come from a K through 12 that is standardized, that is tested, you know, standardized testing, and then they get to college. And I think the one thing you're noticing through all these classes that you teach, even at the MBA level, is when you throw this um, amazing reflective assignment at them or um, to study a person and pull in things about the person's history their timeline, their brand, those types of things. You struggle with getting them to risk, to think critically, to reflect, to, I mean, you struggle with all that and you're very open about 
this is where you are. And if you look back at how you were educated, this is why, but here's what has to change or you can't move forward. And that's been huge for those students. I think what they do with you is more transformative and I'll flip that script. That's the kind of friend you are. And I'm noticing that more and more, maybe even just since this podcast, but who I, you know, they say like when you get older, your circle of friends or the people that you hold near get smaller and I think uh-huh. that's that intentionality. But I also think it's because we notice the closer we are to our truth, we want to be with people that are in theirs. Because then you'll hold each other. Kind of, I mean, I, I don't know that accountability is maybe the word that you and I would use to describe it. But you you recognize my truth and you hold me to that and help me and challenge and stretch me just like you do those students. And I think that's healthy. And I look at other people that were maybe colleagues or you know, in the world at the same time as me that I've had interactions with, I wouldn't have taken the time or invested or called them my inspiration like I do you because they just weren't in their truth. And they certainly were not ready for mine. You, they didn't uh, want that. You, you've made me think about uh, the history of our relationship. So when I arrived four years ago, unbeknown to me, you had probably been encouraged uh, not to, to get in my lane too much. I just arrived from England and I had lots of transitioning issues to get through and the emphasis of that meant that we were in a situation where I asked the question is this is Anna Stump okay Professor Anna Stump and I asked a couple of people I knew and I said oh yeah and then when I spoke to you it became evident that you were just you'd been encouraged to let me do my thing and uh I, I just didn't agree with that. And then that, that, well, that goes that. back to, they were worried how you would perceive me because I was this bigger than big passionate force to them. Right. Because I'm just different. Yeah. And but, they were, I think there were people that were like that. He let's get him in here and get him established before we let those two. Well, uh, here's the thing you t- talked about uh, reflective, um, thinking or reflective practice. So reflective, um, spelt in the conventional way, whether it's English or American, the the, the C T I V E, but there's also reflexive, X I V E oh, yeah. at the end. So what I take students through is reflective is what you did, but reflexive is how did you feel when you did what you did. Mm. So when we got to meet, that's all I've ever done with you. I ever do with myself or um, students or clients is to ask them not just to tick a box to say you've done something, but why did you do it? A bit like Simon Sinek's why question. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think what I discovered was if the train is traveling so fast that you're just ticking off things, you don't actually get to enjoy any of the journey or the destinations. In fact, you think the destinations are everything, but when you get to the destinations, there's an anticlimax. So you effectively have a journey in life and it's just this profile. So you can have as many qualifications in your life as you want, but what do they mean if you've never had time to think about them? Well, and then how do you tell the story, right? As marketers and branders and and educators, we're storytellers. And I think about the best stories uh, Kevin and I joke because he reads all these politically heavy novels and um, he's like, it, it would be three pages and they'll describe the room. Yeah. But he's like, you're so into that description. And that's how I've always been 
when I experience things in life, I can tell you what it smelled like. I can tell you what it felt like. I can tell you how heavy the air was. I can tell you those things because I think I'm very intentional in the moment. Yeah. Whereas if you are just going through and checking the box, they're just all of a sudden at the destination and they're not really can't remember the journey. And that's where your real power is. Absolutely. And I think, um, I am very humbled and I get emotional if I think about it on your journey because I can see all of this energy you had that you wanted to, to put out there. And, and we spoke about that. And then we've, you, know, you firsthand, but I've been had the privilege to witness all these doors opening. And what really happens is when you dare to walk up to a door, you actually don't even have to open it. When you dare to look around and you see a door, it will open for you. And I think the privilege I've had is to watch you do that. To be here in the middle of a, a podcast with you is humbling. It's emotional because it's like we spoke about this years ago and now you're doing it. And that to me yeah. is that, that, that is the, the epicenter, the ethos, the energy, the gas behind golden ticket. It's come to fruition. Even the golden ticket, um, prof.com. We, we, we had student applied projects. I gave them all lots of different two things. Two years ago. Two years ago. All these things. The students are involved. They were willing you to, to get into this. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping and praying whoever is listening to this, whether they know you or, or not, what they really should be looking at and really reflecting on is that what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And, and really being deliberate. So, um, well, and the other piece I would say to that is, the thing about golden ticket too, is nothing happens in a silo. Yeah. I mean, you can meditate in public or in peace on your own and you can do a lot of things in internally, but it was all of that validation, all of those conversations with you and a couple of other people um, that helped me along the way sit here with you today. I I mean, I was excited about it. It was kind of like my dissertation. I would have settled for what was easy, what I was being told you should do this because it's easy. And you walked into my office or vice versa, whatever version of the office landscape we each remember, but you said, I'm going to say something from my heart and I hope you take it the right way, which I set up straighter. Cause I was like, that's how I want everyone to talk to me. But you said, I don't think you are doing yourself justice if you don't think about this other Avenue And to your point, I thought about that all the way home and I got home and started researching and the first four journal articles that came up 100% opened that door for me. And I thought I can do that, right? And it's, again, it goes back to your lens. It's that yellow car, yellow car, yellow car, right? The fact that you cared enough to bring that to my forefront, that would have never happened to me on my own. Just thinking about that, I would have talked myself into one version of that or the other super quickly. Um, Talk to Okay, I want to talk about your truth for a minute, because I'm going to give you um, a perception that I don't think you and I have talked about very much. And I'm interested, I always call you all the bees, right? I tell everybody, for those who can't see Ray, um, he is black, and he is bald, and he is British. (laughs) And he's bold and beautiful and a million other things. But I always say, you know, there's a difference, I think, coming from British culture and British education system, but you have this amazingly diverse background. Mm-hmm. You've taught many things, you've had many jobs, you've had different journeys, di- vocationally, personally, spiritually, all of those things. How do you go through all of that and then find 
your truth? Or did it take going through all that? I'm so interested in that because it's funny when I tell people that, you know, oh, he has a PhD in personal branding and he's this and he's this, but he's also got a degree in psychology and he has this. And (laughs) I keep describing all those things. And I think every once in a while it hit me, hits me like just how complex you are in all of your experiences. So how does that talk to me about that? Um, That's a good question. Really good question. I would say, I mean, my parents have been a massive impact on my life and um, I don't want to upset my mother, but particularly my father. Um, He's an economic migrant from the Caribbean to the UK. Um, My mother's English. So I discovered in America four years ago, I've got a new title. I'm biracial um, because that title. Another B. Another B. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. Um, so I had to comprehend what does biracial mean? Because as I say that on this podcast, some people have moved immediately to comprehension of that based on the etymology of the word, which is meaning and history to them. But remember, imagine not hearing that word or comprehending it for you. Imagine someone giving you an, a label. And actually, we are given labels as kids. So I got that label here in my 40s, arriving in America. Oh, you're biracial. Um, and? What does that mean? Well, four years later, I've discovered it means different things to different people, depending on who I'm talking to. So, and that spoke to my truth. Um, I think the origins of my truth is that I come from a diverse background. My father told me it was incredibly important um, to, to get yourself an education, but he was also very competitive. So he wanted me to pursue sports. So I've just finished a walk with my wife and I was reflecting on my school life and I I wanted to be the captain of all the sports teams. I wanted to be um, in the top stream. And when I got those things, I was chasing, 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 but I was laughing. I was walking around. I said, what does it all mean? Nothing. But I can see the origin of that drive. And I'm watching Last Dance with MJ. And he Mm. said, there's there's a price to pay for for being the best. And, you know, and, and I'm looking at that and smiling because there's some truth to that, that actually sometimes you inadvertently take things up. So for me, I felt I had to be on top of everything because my dad being a migrant said, you don't get second chances. You got to take you. So it meant that I got involved in sport. I played soccer at college. Um, I happened to be involved in the sport that I was just blessed to be good at. I can honestly tell all the listeners right now, it certainly wasn't particularly if any of my old coaches are listening. It wasn't based on my work ethic. It was purely built on talent, um, which helps me understand the notion um, of talent, talented derelicts, people that talk about what they could have done in the past, but they didn't do it. Because at some stage, your talent will run out, um, whether it be a sporting talent, um, an intellectual talent. You've got to continually stretch yourself. And I think my truth is about always trying to be the best you can be. And when I fell into a relationship in faith, and I'll put it out there, hopefully it's not too strong for some listeners, but I fell in love with Christ. It was like, okay, I'm actually nothing without you. You created me. Um, you knew me before you created the world. And you knew that my dad would meet my mum, scare the village my mum was from. I would turn up and the rest would be my journey and my truth. So I've always had a love for people. I've always had a love for honesty and integrity. Um, although I've not always pursued that. I've, I've, I've got brokenness like everyone else. And I think as I reflect on things and then ask the why question, sometimes it's quite embarrassing when you see what you do. But when you amalgamate marketing and psychology and theology, you end up with three narratives that most of us do. We have thoughts, cognitions, um, we have emotions, feelings, 
and then we have actions and doings. And I think for me, what's interesting is when you ask me the question, our truth, you can work it both ways. Our truth is not necessarily what you see people doing. The truth is the origin of that. And it comes from the way we've been thinking, what we've been conditioned by. So as a child, I had no, I say to students, have you ever worked with a brand manager or director? And they say, oh, no, no, no. And I say, well, you, we all have because you have parents, guardians. They give you a name. They clothe you. They, they, they enforce or they wouldn't like to call it enforce, although we have helicopter and lawnmower parents now. They encourage you to look at the world a certain way. All of that is a shaping. I believe mm-hmm. in my heart the golden ticket is about you saying thank you, whoever it was in your life that's contributed to your life. But there's a point when you have to show up. Oh, yeah. And having the confidence to know when that is. Yes, yes. And college students, I mean, that's the first conversation. You'd recognize that from your your journey from high school onto college. And, you know, when we've spoken before about your stepped approach from a, a very successful corporate life, recognizing that you loved engaging people, then going into school and then realizing I need to engage them more and stretch them more and then going into college and then moving on to grad school level for me and then consulting and speaking. You want to be in that space where you're saying to people, hey, let's turn the lights on. Let's see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And not everyone's going to want that light to be switched on. And that's oh, OK. No. That's OK. Because there's enough people out there that want the light to be switched on or the volume to be turned up. And I truly believe that's 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 the lane that you're in is to say, if, if you want to hear me. I want to share a dialogue with you and I want you to be involved. Well, I think the analogy of that light is so perfect, right? Because to some people, they, when you turn the light on, they're not having it. They can't open their eyes. They can't refocus. They (laughs) can't see. They got spots in their face and they're just like, turn it off, turn it off, turn off, not ready. Then to the people that do turn it on, that's when you can start to see much more than just what was right in front of you before. And I think that's what's, you know, I love social media. Love it. Yeah. But I also know what we see and perceive other people's lives to be like, or all of these, you know, you and I have a, a long history of discussing Gary V and yeah. the great things that he does, but also there's that hustle and grind and entrepreneurial thing that they're putting out there. That's also distorts that light or distorts what you should be doing or what you should be. So I think I always want my gift of being the loudest in the room or the one with the best stories or the edutainer in me. I want people to say, you can't look to other people. Once the lights on, you have to look in the mirror. You can go talk to other people about what you see and how to perceive it. But man, you've got to really do the work yourself. You've got a great point there, and I'm just about to throw myself under the bus now, but um, I remember you sending me a link uh, to a social media aspect, which I found intriguing, and I spoke to students on an NBA program, and I think it was Gary Vee's perspective that you didn't need a college education, um, but then there was a little bit more revelation that most of the people he employed had a college education. Well, if we park that for one second, here's the issue. If you're listening to that narrative, you can't blame Gary Vee. You can't blame anyone else if you make a decision. Your job is to accumulate information and then own your own decision, own your truth. That's the difficulty because I think Gary Vee is a phenomenal motivator on many levels, but does that make him perfect? No, and he confesses that. So I may I may listen to him and agree with nine things out of 10 or one thing out of 10, but that doesn't really 
change the fact that I still at the end of that moment, when I go and proceed on with my life, I need to make a decision that I believe is right for me and own it and not point a finger at someone else saying, you made me do that. Well, and I think about you and I've heard your wife talk about this too, um, which by the way, as amazing as I think you are, I think probably the best thing you've done in life is marry well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to even, I'm not even going to fight that one. No, because I mean, she's uh, gorgeous, but she is deep and wise and brilliant. And I love everything about your wife. Um, but I've heard the two of you even sit on a stage and talk about the decision to pack up your family and move to a, a completely different country because of what you felt you like your truth was and what yeah. you wanted. And I just think sometimes about the layers and layers and layers of all of that, that had to, again, lenses, right? You had to think about that professionally, not just as a college professor, you weren't quite done with your PhD at the time. You had to think about a whole new education system. You've already described the differences in education for your children, but your wife had to come here and couldn't work. Your children came to a whole new place. You had other businesses and interests in representing artists and athletes and things you were doing with personal brand in the UK that you just felt called to walk into a different so, lane yeah. altogether. Let me qualify a couple of things there because it was a painful journey, but then we grow through pain. Um, right. Well, yeah, that's so, when the growth happens. Yeah. So the, re the reality is we, we came here and I told my wife, that we were going for vacation in Indiana, which to most Americans is kind of quite funny. And what I meant by vacation is the place we were staying had a swimming pool and it was, right. and it was like June. So I said, look guys, we're going, we're going to America and we're going to go on vacation. So, which this is the same person who sends me pictures of the sea when you actually go home to for England, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, right? That, that's, <laughs> that, that looks like vacation to me, not a pool um, in Indiana. <laughs> But I remember getting um, an indication there was going to be an offer and sharing my wife. And she suddenly looked at me and said, I thought this was a vacation. And she got a bit tearful because it was a realization that I was considering it. And it was against all all logical facts. And this is where I, I pose caution for anyone listening. Um, sometimes the numbers don't add up. So in the in the world of objectivity, it made no sense to consider the job. But in the world of that call on your heart, um, so that thing, you know, and for me, particularly the call of the spirit and, and God saying, look, I want you to do this. I felt it, but due to everyone's fear and trepidation, I said no. And then uh, the dean of the school at the time, Dr. Terry Truitt, said, do you mind if I speak to you? infrequently you know ever so often i said for sure well ever so often was once a month at least and we would speak and i got to know him he got to know me and at the core of that was a great jedi mind trick because what he was doing was developing a relationship with me and the following year came round, and i was invited over again i couldn't get away with the the vacation narrative this time and my family and friends were all concerned he's going back out there for an interview and this time it just felt very compelling so we ended up um, leaving, we, we, we ended up while we were here thinking about where can we live? And we drove down, we came off of an exit and language difference. There's no, 
nothing called exits in the UK. They're called junctions. So right. exit 210, well, there's nothing that's got 210 of anything in the UK because it's smaller. It would be right. junction four. That's I live off of junction four um, in England. <laughs> so, you know, but here it was an exit. And um, we looked at a home and my wife was at this stage clearly not a fan of the move. But out of love, loyalty, and mostly lunacy, she was open to investigating. And I can't hold her up higher than this because every one of you listening out there, if if you've yet to enter into a relationship or if you're due to be married or if you've been married, you will know, particularly if you've been married, how important it is that nothing happens in isolation. You, you, you have to work together and it's like machinery. Everything's working in its own part. And I knew that this American... Uh, life-changing move could not happen without my wife being involved. Well, and one thing we're kind of not paying enough credit to is how many places, institutions, locations had offered you jobs, visits, you know, whether it was visiting professor permanent, I mean, you have had job offers. So the fact that this, tiny institution in the middle of a town most people hadn't heard from in a state that most people forget well, trying to go yeah. trying to talk to that that again you talk about a little bit of lunacy and everything yeah. else that is also a big factor at that well going back to your i'm sure when your children at their ages at the time thought about the united states they were like most people in other countries oh new york Los Angeles, Miami, right? Yeah, there was no sure. Midwest real vibe there. And and actually, um, uh, we we traveled in October 2001 to America when everyone was afraid to travel, and right. we and we and I was doing some teaching down in Miami University in Miami. Um, but I share something. Try not to make it sound like a um, a testimony, but in part it is. Going back to your truth question, um, I had a scenario. A crazy scenario where um, I'd picked up uh, an American um, minister who'd been traveling through China um, and Africa, and he was just about to fly back. And someone in a church, and I was working, I was consulting for a nonprofit, and I said, "Look, if you need me for anything, let me know." And I got a call from a church um, pastor that said, "Could you possibly pick someone up from the airport and take them to a hotel?" And I did. And then they were going to have a church service at night. And I decided I wasn't going to go um, because I was too busy. So I'd invite them to our home in between, phone my wife again, my poor wife, and said, oh, there's a guy. Because I didn't want him to go to a hotel and eat hotel food. So he came to our home. He had some food. Then I took him to his hotel. And I thought, I won't do it. Anyway, I left it. And then I had this little yearning. I need to go. And he's there speaking. And he sees me at the back. And he says, oh, Ray, come forward. I've been waiting for you. So my heart starts to bump and build up. And amongst other things he shared, he said, Ray, um, you know, I don't know where you are in your your faith. He says, but um, I spend my life committed to, I've been away from my wife and my family for a year in my mission field. But um, God's told me something. He told me I had to wait until you turned up and sat at the back of the church. So my heart is now literally throbbing out of my chest. I'm like, what's he going to say? And I'm standing in front of this church thinking, I did not sign up for this. Why didn't I stay at home and watch TV? And the thing he said, he goes, you're going to get an opportunity. You're in a job at the moment. And God told you to stay in that job until he asks you to move and you'll know when. 
and he revealed some other things and I went home and I said to my wife and when the the job came up in America here of all the options I had if I take it back to that truth I knew what my truth was mm-hmm. to come yeah. to Indiana now that may sound I didn't if I looked at the evidence it didn't make sense but when I went back to my heart self I went back to that narrative now I was told that just to put it into perspective I was told that I think it would have been roughly about 2010, nine or 10. Mm-hmm. So I came over in 2000, well, right at the beginning of 2016, but committed in 2015. So for me, I had that truth sown and I actually stayed in the same job. And I didn't move. I wasn't even conscious that I was staying in the job. I wasn't conscious I was turning jobs down. It was just a really, but I became immensely conscious when I had this nudge and thought this was real. But it was the scariest thing. And I think anyone speaking in your own story, your own truth is when you know you need to do something. You knew you had to do a podcast. You knew you needed to share your truth. And now you're doing it. You probably feel, and, and life's a journey, but you feel a little bit more whole than you did the day before you started the podcast. Well, I used to think, where will I have the time? I'm so busy. I, I got a um, text message from Gabby that I she showed up in her time hop or she found from us back in 2018. Right. Okay. And she said, you know, Anna's spilling the tea or whatever. And and she was joking around and she's, I said, it's something about a podcast. And I said, as soon as this dissertation's done, I'm doing it or whatever. So she sent me this screenshot last week. Wow. And she said, it, you made it happen. You're so inspirational and this and this. And I sat there and I thought, I stared at that. And I said, man, I used that dissertation for a lot over four years, you know, over the four years I was in that program. And I, but it did take up a lot of time. But then I still, when I got done, I waited and I waited because I kept thinking, oh, the editing's going to take so long and this is going to take so long. Here I am less than two weeks into it. I jump, I'll get out of bed early to come in here and sit down and do things with it. I'm constantly thinking about it. I'm energized, but it, my life has found the room and the time It has expanded. It does not feel like a burden, right? That's when you know you're in your truth is you have that peace and that settling feeling about it all. And you're absolutely right. It's, it is once you've experienced it and you feel it, and you and I've had this conversation a lot over our timeline just together where we've noticed this for one another and drawn the other person's attention to it. And then just some decisions, even over the last several months, um, where we have recognized that you're not feeling it, right? This doesn't feel calm. This doesn't yeah. feel settling. You need to take a breath. You need to sleep on this. You need to pray on this. You need to get into something else because you're forcing it. And that's where you start to feel like, okay, this is not fitting. This is not that same piece because from the outside, I'm looking at you bringing your whole family over here and what you've done. And, you know, you felt more peace about that than I felt about like which jar of pickles I'm buying at the grocery store sometimes. So it's just, you have to know, you have to accept it and you have to know, and then you have to look for it all the time, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that most people, um, when I was making the decision, most people thought that Ray in the UK was 99 cents or 99p, as we'd say in England, (laughs) um, short of a dollar or a pound, um, because it didn't make sense. And when I reflect back on that, that was one of the hardest things to have friends and family look at me 
with this mixture of pity and confusion because I was about to go and do something that was wrong. Even my PhD supervisor, one of them said, you shouldn't be going. You finish your PhD. You need to write it up. I, I, I said, I'll do, I'll do that in the first month. Well, it took me a year to write that month right. up because actually I was totally naive. And I think I needed to be numbed by naivety at that phase of transition because if I had had a heightened sensitivity to everything, I would have probably imploded, exploded. Mm -hmm. So it was like I needed to be anesthetized on certain things to be able to make that move. So I always say to people that that move – for me personally, it was absolutely um, a divine um, movement in our lives, my wife and ours, because oh. we couldn't have done it in our own strength. And I think speaking to this truth is I think your truth lines up with when you're in your truth, you are running the race that you were designed to run. You know, your, your talents all come out. When you say about well, jumping out of bed enthusiastically, it's no longer, oh, I've got to get up. It's like, mm -hmm. I need to do this. Well, and it's, you have the energy because you're running your race, not somebody else's race. You're not trying to keep up with other people. Absolutely. You're not trying to keep up with the thought or the idea of what something should be. You are running your race and you have the stamina of a marathon. Yeah, absolutely. Because you are in the true lane, true place you're supposed to be. And I think that's one thing I feel like sometimes I've let you down as a friend or maybe haven't been there the way I should because you've settled so easily from the outside and, and it was, it's always interesting. And I even brought it up a few minutes ago about your perspective being new, but I think I forget like you're in a whole house full of people that were, your wife has to go through new experiences and transitions. And I mean, it's not like you didn't speak English when you got, you didn't speak Midwestern English. <laughs> you know, it's like your kids were going through new classes and new sport. I mean, like, Everything was so brand new. Yeah. But if you all were ready for such a time as this, that, that what an education for all of you, what growth for all of you, what, what a foundation to raise those kids on. I yeah. mean, really they've done the big, big change in life. What there are things that are going to come at them and for the rest of their lives, that is not going to seem monumental. Like it may be to some. I think it's a great point. And the greatest gift I think now despite all the hesitancy at the beginning was the gift of the ability to do anything you want to do. So those, my, my children, when we arrived were uh, 12, nine, seven and five. Um, and they're now, you know, 16, 13, um, 11 and nine. Um, so that four year period is they are really young Americans. Um, mm -hmm. And my wife and I laugh about it, and I've got video of them speaking um, four years ago. And although they have all, bless them, attempted to keep a semblance of an English accent, um, they ostensibly fought, particularly my, my dear nine-year-old. She has got the richest Midwestonian accent you could think of, but she only switches it on when I'm not around. So she could, <laughs> she's got two gears. So one of my sons found her doing something on TikTok playing around and they showed me and she was devastated because bless her. She didn't want daddy to see oh, her yeah. speaking with him. And it goes back to our identity, her truth as she sees when she, she wants me to see, this is a complicated thing about identity. She wants me to see her truth through an English accent. And it, it's made me reflect deeper again into all of our identities. 
how do you want people to see you? And there's not always the same. So mm-hmm. if you're a teenager, listen to this, or you're a high school or you're an adult, how many things do you change and deviate around? What do you do with a husband and wife relationship with the friends in the block? You know, what we're, we're continually changing our truth. And actually that's exhausting. Oh, so exhausting. It's yeah. That's when you, I think, you know, that's yeah. when you know, you're not in your truth is you're exhausted, but everything all the time. And you should be, uh, arguably you should be able to float across the two. I mean, during this, uh, unprecedented time of uncertainty, we'll speak on the phone. Um, and we'll just share and engage and, I'm now surrounded by my whole family because no one's at school. Um, you know, we're all around and, and likewise for everyone. And I think what has happened, and I've read some of the online threads, are people that have been used to having their professional truth very fixed, suddenly being encouraged or forced to work at home, have had to compromise some of that identity. I think there's a great clip of an advert on TV that I've seen where um, a little girl's got her, head, her dad's headphones on and she's saying, do you need a loan? because he must be a loan officer or something. And I just think it's, it's brilliant because what she's seen is some of his truth at work. Or like the wife that says, I, she posts, I just realized I'm married to the, let's all circle back around next week on this. <laughs> yeah. She's like, never in a million years, because I, I, I put up with that guy at work, never did I think I was married to that guy. But I just heard my husband say that in the other room. <laughs> Which is, I mean, so the gap between our private self and our professional self is smaller than it's ever been. Uh, And actually, there are new standards. You know, people are accepting, people are in meetings are accepting that someone's child might walk in in a meeting and no one's bothered about it. But when you. Or they want to see everybody's pets. Yeah, absolutely. Or we're joking around about trying to see everybody's room in their house. Like, what is that hanging on the wall back there, right? Like, we really are these curious creatures and it's cool. But we're discovering people's truths, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Actually, now they don't have the protection of a dress sense and a, a corporate desk. You know, suddenly you are who you are when no one's looking. Well, everyone's right. looking now because that space is now being invaded. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, truth, I mean, we've spoken a lot about truth. I think truth, authenticity, keeping it real, um, you know, being comfortable in the shoes you've put on. It's pointless putting on a pair of shoes that are uncomfortable because you think they look good. Right. Well, I had a whole episode about what it looks like for other people, but I can only, I'm trying to think if I ever had someone in my life when I was in college or that age that like you or I have been for students. And then I fast forward, I had a text conversation with a former student of ours who said, you know, I'd be sitting in one of Ray's classes and he would be throwing it down, like keeping it real. And then the door would crack open and here you would come. (laughs) (laughs) And then we just have to close our laptops and just get ready because you two were going to take us someplace we'd never been before. And that sometimes I would roll my eyes because I think I'm not in for this today. And that other times I'd think, okay, here's where I'm actually really going to get the most out of college because these two are not going to let me sleep on what's coming. You yeah. know, and I think that's the biggest compliment. And I think you and I are on that keep it real plain. Um because again of our truth and holding one another accountable for that. But I think that's probably the most prideful thing I hear from former students is that that's where the learning happened was in your office or in well, those conversations. Or when you got off topic, 
I think, Anna, you've you've hit the nail on the head. I, I often say to students, your education is what you remember um, of your education. And um, it's always a disappointment to me when I ask students, when I meet them for the first time, what do they do at high school? What do they do in freshman year or sophomore year? Because I predominantly teach junior, seniors or grads. And when they reflect from a semester ago, literally uh, a Christmas break ago, they can't remember what they did in some classes. And I think it goes back to the original point of if you're teaching with the accumulation of knowledge to be regurgitated, but the knowledge isn't something you're going to keep, then learning is being able to apply it to your everyday life. And if you can't apply it and you've just ticked a box, go back to reflective. Oh, I did that class, tick. But if you can't be reflexive, what did you feel? What did you learn? Then actually, are you? it's a bit, I always say to students, it's a bit like paying, going to McDonald's, ordering a meal and leaving the meal on the counter and leaving. The only caveat is ed- higher education in America is not the cost of a happy meal. Right. <laughs> Right. So, you know, you, whatever yeah. factorial you have to times a Happy Meal price by, that's what you're doing. You're paying for it and then walking out. You're actually buying the franchise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And then so. <laughs> I'm going to own my own McDonald's with what I'm paying for this. And no, for sure. And I think when I look at disruption, what's happening because of this pandemic and disruption in just life in general, whether it's in your industry or in your personal life, whatever it's in, being in your truth and being solid makes that disruption easier. And again, I look at, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I got put in this Facebook group right after the pandemic hit and it was a bunch of professors trying to figure out how am I going to teach? Yeah, And it was so inspirational, like the first two weeks, because everybody was like, I just want to be there and I want to check on them and I want to make sure I'm the... Well, two weeks had gone by and then it was like, they're not performing on these quizzes and they're not like they got, they'd fallen back into those old habits of I'm the expert and I'm here to this. And I, that's when I started reading that. I was like, okay, first of all, I'm going to have to get out of this altogether. And that's when I would call you and say like, cause I wasn't teaching last semester, but I got into with you, like, what are you doing? And you're like, it's taken forever, but I'm meeting with each student individually, right? Because you knew that's what had to happen in that. They needed, they needed to be seen. Yeah. They needed to be yeah. seen and heard and remembered and thought of. And you were providing that. And that's not typical. And again, how much time that took. But yeah. I think um, I'm, I'm just looking down at something here that the history of higher education has been driven by kind of um, a didactic delivery system. And I, I don't have the intellect to define didactic. I just use it often. So I've just, you do. <laughs> I, I've just, I've just got it up here and it says intended to teach, particularly in having moral instruction in an ulterior motive. See, it's very deliberate. It's very incisive. It can sometimes come over as patronizing that, you know, I'm the boss. I've got my doctoral degree. You guys, you know, your minions, etc. And I think education is changing because if I look at, TikTok and other social media platforms, what people are craving, and funny enough, I think all people, because if you look at the the fastest growing rate on TikTok, it's among 30-somethings. Um, it's no longer just teenagers and younger. But um, everyone craves relationship. And I don't think a, a top-down, one-way communication does that. And I think even in a Christian walk, for me, that a real relationship with God isn't one where you 
you define it yourself and you do the, you follow the rules you think are right it is really leaning in meaningfully to prayer and and, and reflection but mostly surrender and in modern language surrender is not a positive word weak is not a positive word Mm-mm. um but actually vulnerable vulnerable is not brenny you know brenny brown um and vulnerability is a key thing but i, I remember you coming into my classes sometimes invited sometimes gate crashing whichever way it was always good um and I remember you inviting me into your classes, but we were trying to say to students, I think, guys, everything you do is great, but just think a bit more. Why yeah. are you doing what you're doing and what decisions are you going to make? Entrepreneurship is all about making decisions. And we, we've got this um, pending global economic challenge Um, Some people say pending. Some people say it's already started. Some people are waiting for a recovery. But one thing's for sure, the students graduating high school, university and those early in their careers. This is a challenging time because they're being exposed to disruption um, of untold magnitude. But in relative Mm -hmm. terms, they're relatively new into their careers. So all they've got to do really is not subscribe to the stories they've been told about. This is corporate life and be open and nimble enough to know things are changing and the the millennial population is is fast becoming the most dominant one in the workforce anyway so when you look at that you know we're we're gen x's and baby boomers we're a little bit resistant but you used to say something to me that always made me smile so i plagiarized it anything that makes me smile you you have to plagiarize and you used to say used to say to students you guys are digital natives and i'm a digital immigrant um and I love that statement because it means if you're someone that falls outside of the natural intuitive nature of having a, a smart cell phone early in life, you have to be intentional. And I've seen people, you know, really celebrate because they've been able to like someone's comment on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And if that's the limit of what they want to do, that's great. But I think if you're in business today, whatever age you are, you have to be intentional and you have to recognize the world around you. It's changing. Um, well, and the thing incredibly. that this group that we've been teaching these Gen Zs don't understand is they're the biggest group. They studied baby boomers yeah. in high school in history because they were so big. There's more Gen Zs. Absolutely. They've got the power. But to your point, they don't know what to do with it. Part of it's because it's new and they haven't gotten those older generations cleared out of their way yet. But it goes back to just what you said, like, you would invite me in or I would invite you in against traditional thought and traditional higher ed and traditional relationships with colleagues. We didn't invite one another or bust in the room. Great crashing. I like how you call that. We didn't gate crash to come in and agree with one another. Like you never brought me in to say, okay, I just told you X, Y, and Z. And here's my colleague who's going to support X, Y, and Z. We most often called one another into the classroom to give the other side perspective because you and I don't always agree on things and have a different perspective or different experience. And we embrace that about each other. Yeah. Right. Like, Here's how I view this, but listen to Anna tell you this, or I would say, let Ray tell you, or I would, we quote each other a lot and say, you know, if you talk to Ray, he would say this or that. And I say X, Y, and Z. Like, that's the brilliance of how I think you and I interacted in front of those students to try and get their criticality up, to try to get them to seek other viewpoints 
not to get, not to seek validation, but to seek more information. So I always thought that was one thing I always appreciated about you because I'd say, Hey, I'm going to be talking about this or that and marketing. And you'd go, well, what do you want me? How do you want me to play this? Like, what do you want me to say? Because, you know, you didn't want to come in and rock the boat too hard, especially with our younger students that didn't know us very well. But I always thought that was so important that they saw us have those conversations. Absolutely. Okay. One thing that I am always leery of is when someone's called an expert, because I'm always like, really? Is that true? (laughs) But the other thing I'm always leery of are cliches. So I think I would firmly say that you are a personal brand expert because personal brand has gotten super cliche um, in society and in the business world. And, and, and I think your approach to this is so fascinating, holistic and healthy. I want to hear more about it. Okay. Um, I would say, and, and I've spent time looking, I'd encourage any listener to look themselves, but the vast, vast majority of personal branding is really, if, if I put it into a nutshell, is old school marketing techniques applied to a person. So here you are, what are your resources, what are your capabilities, shout as loud as you can who you are, power dress, power walk, power talk. Um, if any of you have seen the Hitch film, there's a clip in there where the guy says all the powers he's got. Um, and that's really the cliched aspect. The origin of mine comes from a different platform because um, – one of my master's degrees is in behavioral science and it was really looking at why we do what we do and recognizing that we do different things in different environments. So we have a professional environment. We have um, our private environment. We all look different. We, we're not the same gender. We're not the same racial background. All those differences impact who we are and how we're received. Um, and over years, you know, Malcolm Black uh, Gladwell's got a book called Blink, um, and in there, he references um, a president who was selected before he ever knew he was going to be a president because someone looked at him and thought, you look the part. And that, to me, says a lot about personal branding. So um, Amer- American culture dominates with personal branding. But it is, I, I did a search yesterday, the top blogs and podcasts related to um, personal branding. And I went through all the biographies and every single one was about career, money, success, career, money, success. And I think that's probably where I differ. I'm trying to take a holistic approach and you are what you are when no one's looking is something I talk about a lot. So what do you do in your downtime? And obviously during this unusually challenging phase, everyone's back at home. So you're, where I see it is your private self is meeting your professional self. So they're colliding. Whereas before people right. compartmentalize, you can't. So they're all bleeding into each other. And I think it's forcing people to work out what their truth is. Well, and not only could they compartmentalize, they could justify. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like I'm this way at work because I have to be this way. I have to be aggressive. I have to be different. But when I come home, because I've been that way, I need to be this way, or this is how my spouse is. So I need this, or we could justify so much Yeah, yeah. and get by with a lot. So um, Tom Peters, and I've said this in another podcast guest talk, but I'll, I'll repeat it again. Different audience, or perhaps it might be the same, similar if you're. I'm going to share the link to that podcast in this one because I think everyone, there's okay. so much good stuff in there about you too. So at the core of personal branding for me is where your truth is. Um, and I say there are three agitators and we are all of them. So if I take my own broken nature, um, I like to be in control sometimes, a lot of the time. Um I'm also defined by my affinity to different communities. That might be 
a university community. It might be um, men. It might be my racial identity. It could be church. It could be sports team affiliation. So we all have affiliations and affinities. But the last one for me is who you are in your creed. What are your values and principles that drive your life? And as a Christian, my creed would be being in relationship with Christ. So those three things agitate. And in my journey in America, I found those three fascinating to understand as a social phenomenon in America, because America is um, very, very, um, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of a word and I'm not wanting to say it and thinking, should I use another word? But I think I've got to be real and share the truth. It's very yeah. divided by groups. Um, and those groups tend not to always coexist in an integrated way. They coexist separately. Um, right. And what that means to me is I, I reflect on that. What does that mean then? What does the American dream mean? Well, it means you can be anything you want, but you wrap around your sense of control, and you can see that through the amendment rights. Then you wrap it around your affinity to groups, and then you wrap around your version of Christianity. And the third one, the Christian one, is the really interesting one for me in personal branding because actually church denominations are brands. If you look oh, yeah. at what brands are, they're clusters of meaning and association that have been impacted by historical truth. So if you're someone and you come from a denomination, and I won't mention any denominations, and I won't be accused of picking on any, but there are lots out there. So if you're listening, you know the denominations, but each of them have a different emphasis they may have selected a, a portion of the Bible and their emphasis in, in a particular way. And what that does mean is that personal branding at the core is very complicated. It's your interpretation of faith if you have one, or you don't have one, you're an atheist, that's still a faith in nothing. And then it's your interpretation of your affinity to groups and iron sharpens iron. Who do you hang with? Who are the people you, you relate to? And then where's your control? What do you expect? So I'm looking at all of this through the lens also of COVID-19 and, and America has the highest death rates in the world. In fact, I watched uh, a news item from the BBC yesterday and it was talking, it showed a, a chart and it said the outliers and America was the highest. I think projected death rates could be 147,000 in August. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at that and then I was looking at the notion of freedom and then looking at countries that uh, say in the east where it's slightly more authoritarian so everyone falls into line and everyone's wearing masks and i'm trying to factor in all of that because they're all to do with personal branding when at the core of who you are is the freedom to choose and um, your control so tom peters first uttered the words personal branding and he said me incorporated meaning me in business and that's really the emanation of my thinking because me inc could stand for me in control or me in community or me in creed and to me, I'm fascinated about how those things work together because that, that's the core of your truth. So your personal brand is driven by truth. And the thing you really helped me uncover when I was working on my dissertation was the context Yes. of where your brand lives or whether it's your personal brand or your business or whatever that is. And you think about context, even you're talking about religions have brands. They're also in competition. Yep. Right. They're branding because they're marketing and they're competing and they're in well, the market. Right. It, it's yeah. everything is politics. Even some of the stuff you're seeing with COVID and people in these groups are using 
stories or posts or social media content about what other groups are doing or those other countries to say, Oh no, not I'm, we're not doing that or not on my watch or that's not going to happen. Like we're almost, instead of again, going back to listening to understand or learn, we're using our group identity and the context of what's going on to solidify the group almost like we're not, it, it doesn't seem always healthy, I guess. No, I, I think that the competition thing and the market thing is really truthful because the fastest growing church in America over the last 20 years has been non-denominational churches, um, of which I'm a member of one. Mm-hmm. Um, so this isn't a criticism, criticism, it's an observation. And when you look at that, you can see there are market truths, why it's more attractive perhaps than some, um, for want of a better term, old time religion which will have more fixed perspectives. Um, and when you look at that, people equally have emanations of truth, and those truths are either attracted to others or not. So if you have, you know, if you look at the Me Too campaign, it fascinates me, that really is around, at the core, its origin was around um, treating everyone the same. But when you, when you, when you take a, a group affiliation, the narrative can be stretched and pulled in different ways, and then suddenly it becomes a campaign slogan, and every person uses the same words in different ways, mm. and it gets really confusing. Um, uh, and I look at that, and I, I look at the way in which I've grown up, sports affiliation. Everyone has their, their rivalries and other things, but they you can wrap them around your identity. Oh, um, yeah. I'd never been – my, I, this is, I'll share a joke for people. If you're particularly in the Midwest, you'll love the first time my wife and I and my family went to church. We went one Sunday and everyone's wearing what appeared to be American football shirts. And then they had luck on the back. So we all said to each other, <laughs> should you wear a top that's talking about luck going to church? That's an honest truth. That's because we had no oh, reference at all. And then someone said, no, that's our quarterback. Obviously, I don't know. Lux Paul's shoulder and everything else is retired. But right. we, no didn't, luck there. we had no reference to it whatsoever. Right. Um, but those people walking in were showing their affinity right. to both the church they were walking through, but to let everyone know it's game day. And this is what well, we This do. just struck me, and it, I don't know that I'd ever really thought about this before, but with your awareness of this phenomenon of context and culture and groups, you had not finished your PhD because you alluded earlier, I'll move to the United States and finish it in the first month or so, which did, it took a lot longer because I think of all of this, you know, settling into a new culture and context and those types of things and finding your groups. But you also moved here in 2015, which was one of the most divisive times yeah. that our country's had and has continued on through where we really were in some turmoil. So that had to be very fascinating to you because you were building this framework. Like you created a theory of personal brand and you have a framework and a diagram and it's brilliant and I love it, but I can't, I just now dawned on me while you were talking, you moved here at a time when that had to be uh, an environment that made all of what you had been studying and thinking about so real. Well, I mean, but again, the grace of God and faith was that the journey here helped consolidate um, some of those theories and they could be put to a test because, Mm -hmm. um, I arrive in the middle of Indiana 
from a country that's much more comfortable with what you might call government intervention politics, NHS, health system, and I arrive in a country where I witness just division. So I've got friends I love dearly from both sides. And if I'm being honest and candid, it just confuses me. So I've now decided to ignore all of that because it's not their truth because both sets of people, wherever they are politically, have loved on myself, my wife and my family. They've been there for us. They've looked after our kids when my wife and I might have had to fly back to the UK. And that to me is when love shows up, I don't care about your politics right <laughs> because it conquers it all and again truth is more than your political group affiliation and that in isolation is so limited it doesn't tell enough of who you are well and there's this shame for people who don't want to identify with one of those groups uh, like uh, if they're middle of the road there's yeah. real hostility for people that don't want to jump in one of the groups well, yeah, I, my student, my students here have been the greatest gift of knowledge. So they've told me I'm an independent, and they said, "So you, it, you, if you do get, you know, if you do become a um, a resident of the U.S. permanently, just know one thing: your vote will be wasted because no one goes for independence." <laughs> and 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 their articulation is quite profound because they said, "As someone of faith, that leans you to the right." But then of someone who is a supporter of treating everyone with love and integrity, that puts you a little bit arguably to the left. But even saying that statement is not true because now my lived experience, I spend more time defending America. Now I've lived here for four years with friends outside of America because you don't know what you don't know. Right. When you live it, you real you meet real people. You're in real relationship and it means nothing. I really honestly absolutely candidly will say it really doesn't matter what journey someone's been on who they are i'm interested in the heart that shows up when i meet them that's all i'm really interested in mm -hmm. and so it surprises you how hard it is to get to that sometimes isn't it well and and here's the thing to your point and it's an excellent point you make anna is that if you're defined so much by your group affinity it stops you engaging in relationship with people that are not part of your group and that's the division it's We've talked about this before. It's being comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's being comfortable mm. with being uncomfortable, reaching out. So um, Peter Drucker um, has got this famous management statement that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, for me as a believer, and I said it yesterday, sorry, not yesterday, the day before in an MBA class as we summed up, um, relationship eats culture for breakfast. So you're in a situation where at the core of everything, relationship conquers everything. But if you start to define yourself with shortcuts, because convenience is really good for us sometimes. Well, I'm this, I'm that. And you do it with labeling and you say, this is who I am. Then suddenly you're defined by the zip code you're in, the job you do, the money you earn, the car you drive. And it's so limited. It's absolutely so limited. Oh, yeah. And I think you find people rely on the brands that you named for all those things and what they're supposed to be like. And they try and live that truth. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like I, I got this car. Now I need to buy this outfit and I need to, you know, they start just losing themselves. So what I know you have a really great exercise that you put your students through and not to take too much away because I'm hoping you write a book and I'm hoping you do a bunch of things around this. But like, what is the first step if you think maybe you need to go through an exercise or you need to take a step back from all this and really find 
out who you are. So my scene, my seniors have just finished this. Um, Again, going back to the greatest um, book in the world, arguably, and I don't want this, my prejudice is the Bible. And if you look at the Bible, simply the Bible is a conglomerate of stories about man and God. Mm-hmm. And basically, when you look at man, it's basically a book of biographical accounts of man, good days, bad days, and indifferent days. So, you know, for me, when I was a kid, you know, David, you know, killed Goliath. He's a hero. And when I was an adult and I read through stuff and it's like, David's an adulterer. David's a murderer. Whoa, really? But then I saw it said, but he's still a man after God's own heart. And for me, that what does that mean? Because if David turned up to a church this Sunday and said, hey, guys, yeah, last week was a bad week. Uh, you know, I got someone killed and I'm having an affair, but I'm all good now. How would that look? Let's be fair. <laughs> They, right. they wouldn't get through the door. So I've been fascinated by biographical accounts. So what I ask students to do is to select someone in a career or in an environment or someone close to them. And I get them to carry out biographical research. And um, it's based upon some research I've done myself, but I get them to triangulate. And what triangulation means is you gather information from different sources and then you look for correlative analysis. You look at where where things line up. So one of the things you do is you look at context or background. So you look at the history. So someone born in the 70s is going to have a particular outlook on the life. We're talking about COVIDians arriving at the end of oh, this yeah. year and next year. Um, what's their life going to be like in 20 years' time? Um, I'm hoping and praying we'll still be having a podcast at that stage. But, um, you know... <laughs> They'll, they may be able to join us and tell us, but they will be born into an era, you know, the swing in 60s or post-war America and mm-hmm. Europe, periods of austerity, the booming 60s, and all of those things impact who we are. And therefore, I want students to lean into an era and understand that someone's background, the journey, the experiences, in some way, by and large, shape their outlook. Then I ask them to analyze and look at what someone, their, their, their research subject, says about themselves. And then, which is a juxtaposition, what do others say about them? And then I get them to think about what they see from those three things that are moving all the time. And they do what we call intersubjective analysis. They look at those three clusters of variables. They look at their own opinions and judgments. They mix them all together and they come out with some themes, and those themes help to contribute to the success or the failure. So Michael Jordan's Last Dance is fascinating to me because it's a biographical account of his life, and you're seeing the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And it's it's part – you can look at what he's saying. You can look at what his teammates are saying. He wasn't really a nice guy. He was a winner. Um, you can hear what coaches are saying. You can hear what media is saying. You can hear about the author that wrote a book about him. And what you can do is you can triangulate all of that and you end up with your own opinion. Who is this guy? Well, and I sit and I look through my lens of social media and I think the media got to him so much about the gambling and the thing with his dad's death and like uh, they weighed on him about so many things. And I think, well, if he had had social media back then, he would be like most celebrities and just ignore it. Absolutely. Which would be really healthy for a lot of just everyday individuals. <laughs> it 
to just act like it didn't exist. And then how different that is with maybe like LeBron who uses it to build again, a brand or do sponsorships or get a message across. I mean, it's a tool for sure. The other piece that we don't see that I'm of course, super fascinated with is his marriage and children. And, you know, there's a whole side of him. We don't see that. I think, I would love a glimpse of that to really get to know him because to dominate physically and to be who he was to those men on his team and what they said about him. And I mean, the the sheer power that he had to come into a game in the playoffs and play well, I mean, play great, but then for somebody to disrespect him as they were walking off the court and for him to come back the next night, yeah, and make a comment like it's going to happen tonight, and then dominate by seventy points <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Like for him to have that in his professional self had to be sacrifices in other ways. I think there's just so much I could watch no, this put, documentary for every weekend for the next five years, and, and, and Anna, it's so good. Put it into context. Remember, this is an icon of sports, and there were many in the past: Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali. You know, you can see them, but you didn't get to see their private life. So social media and the information age wasn't out. So um, by and large, Air Jordan is a mythical, iconic brand. What we're seeing now is a retrospective aspect of the man behind what became an iconic athlete. And that means that you're going to get good, bad and different because we're all human. We all have flaws. So we, we, we now live in an era where we're fascinated with those flaws, but those flaws now are called authenticity. So he's right. actually garnered more fans. I think sale, oh. sales of Ed Jordan's will go up. So his sure. 1.3 billion cumulative income to date is sure to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Um, to pursue excellence as he did in one area, what were the sacrifices? And he uses the term sacrifice for winning. And there would oh, be yeah. relational sacrifices and other things. Um, so, yeah, it, I found it fascinating, and um, I think we've spoken about various documentaries where you see that, particularly of iconic people. And you know, I work in the music industry, fascinated by individuals, their personas, and what they project out to the public, and and what that means to them in real life. Um, I think there's a Lady Gaga um, documentary that I found fascinating, the mm-hmm. Justin Bieber one you told me about, um, mm-hmm. which I found fa- fascinating because you're starting to understand who people are, their origins, and also the work involved in just living oh. life because you don't get a break. And Michael Jordan in, in Last Dance, you do not get a break. When you step outside of your private self, you have everyone looking at you. But think about, we never got the glimpse. And, and I go back, I'll, you know, me and my stories, this is going to go around twice before we get to my point. But I remember teaching high school and I did a Twitter chat with the person who got Shaq on social media Yeah, and Kathleen Hessert. And she said to him, you are going to have to let people into your life. You're going to have to just take pictures of taking your kids to school. Like people want access to parts of you they never had before. And he said, no. And the meeting was done. Like he wasn't having it. So she yeah. had to come back and reframe it. Like you don't have to put your children's faces, but maybe just their shoes as they're walking or frame it in a way, but you have to let people in or you're not going to be able to do this. And she coached him through that. It took a while and he got, he was the first person 
to get like a million followers or what, and really was able to kind of extend his presence yeah. and career past the, the basketball court. And I think, you know, the Kardashians and these paid things like the, the inside or the reality TV or what we perceive. Cause you're right. That thing with Justin Bieber, I've not had much use for him because I was a high school teacher when he came along and the believers and all the things. And I, but that, and again, I know that that documentary was produced and directed and scripted in many ways, but I look at him now and I think I, I love this kid for his journey. I love where he's at now. I love his wife for him. I love this whole thing. Like I'm a fan now because if I feel like I've gotten some insider seat to that, yeah. well, not only does that have an impact on the brand of these athletes, but let's go back to what we just were talking about with the context of who we are and who we affiliate with and why this whole access thing is a whole thing for individual brands and individual people and affiliations. Again, it's just keeps going. It's a cycle. It's, it's super interesting since you've brought this to my attention. I'm obsessed with it. And one thing I would reiterate is reframing branding. The term brand predates marketing. Um, in fact, I think it was first ushered in the 16th century. Branding originally was to do with identity, belonging, community. And what happened was it was there in the English language. But post-war production, and America became the engine room of the world post-war in the 50s, branding got a more focused aspect. Obviously, the history of America and cattle branding, obviously, and cowboys, but post-war, Coca-Cola and products and all of the consumerism drove it. So Mm -hmm. I think today, what I would encourage listeners is when you hear personal branding, it's not the turning of people into products or commodification, as it's known. It is more about taking people back to their truth and their identity and how they connect with themselves and with others um, and taking time to, to do that. So looking at someone's biography, um, Richard Branson, uh, you know, Mr. Virgin has had some challenge to his brand in recent weeks um, simply because during this COVID environment, people expect people to show up and show care and consideration. Mm-hmm. And it's not for me to be the arbitrator of people's views, but he has some quite a few negative threads because people believe there have been opportunities for him to show kindness and he's decided not to. So I don't know whether he's got a personal branding consultant or who's advising him, but the legacy is that people want people to care. So, um, you know, Uber's with his advert, please don't use Uber is clever, but Uber Eats has been phenomenally busy. So they've still got parts of their business working. But what they're saying is do not engage us with the aspects of our traditional business model because the government and others have advised us that that isn't something we should do. So I think we live in an age where your purpose and who you are, everyone wants to know what the truth is. Um, And that's a challenge, I think, because when you think about personal branding, the majority of stuff out there is about success in your own right making money, but it doesn't packaging. packaging. Um, There are, there are lots of people out there that are into identifying the right colors and shades that you can wear and the clothing. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that in of itself. But if that's the definition of a brand um, or a definition of a person, it's not. So, I mean, the last point I would make on this, and it's a bit of a head twist, a person is not a brand impossible, but a brand can be a person. And um, Last Dance can show that. Michael Jordan has never been a brand, 
but Air Jordans sold 126 million in its first year and has turned into a cumulative income for him, as I said earlier, of $1.3 billion. More money than he's ever earned playing the game. Across generations. Across generations. I mean, yeah. Absolutely my incredible. son is obsessed with like asking us questions because he said, you lived when he lived. Like you lived when he played. You lived when absolutely. this was happening. And I'm thinking, <laughs> but I didn't have a smartphone. Like I didn't, yeah. I had the ESPN highlights. Depending on where I lived in the country, I could see a game. Kevin nor I never saw him play in person. But to Jack's world as a 13-year-old in 2020 and the the access and the behind the scenes and the Instagram account, you know, I said, I didn't know him. Like, yeah. you think you know LeBron or you think you know Messi or Ronaldo or any of these other athletes that you follow. Like, I just was watching the same Sports Center highlights you can Google. It's it's different, but we'd never seen anything like him before, for sure. But And I, it's funny to Jack, too, to see these press conferences with the clicking of the cameras and the flashes yeah. and these big bulky microphones. Cause he's like, now they would just have their phones. <laughs> like, it's just different. And I'm like, yes. yeah. So what is your advice knowing what you know and coming at this the way you have for someone that's out there and they're listening to you and they're thinking about groups they're in or how they approach their affiliations or themselves, like what, where do you start if you want to just do that deep dive? If you really want to question where I'm at with my truth and why, my why? So great, great question. If I take us back, um, none of us can remember this, but when we're infants, we're born. And when you look at those three um, core elements of your identity, you're not in control. Um, you don't have comprehension of your creed and your value system. So effectively, you live by what your you live by your community, and that's why community has always been important in civilizations. And what it means is, when you grow up, you you're connected to that community, and then teenage years come in, and the, the cliche is, kids start rebelling against their parents because they find new communities, and the new communities are encouraging them to be in control. So you, that's the first kind of time when you see this tension happen. And then sometimes you'll see them in that phase buffeting between the two. And then if they develop a creed, which we all do, what's their value system? Some, their, the word is their bond. You can trust them if it's a, a religious uh, creed or whatever it might be. And then you have those triangulations. And then you understand the evolution of your identity but once you reach a point, and this is why I've always loved the concept of golden ticket, your real heart for people when I saw it was at that point. Now you know where you are. What are you going to do? You can't You can't blame your childhood. You can't blame who you hung out with. What are you going to take ownership of? And I love that point. So that I don't know if that's helpful. That's what it takes it up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you have to somehow resist all of those other things that are out there, all of those other messages, all of those other courses to help you again identify your color or your logo or your packaging and which is hard to resist sometimes because even you and I have struggled with do I write a book do I go do this do how do I approach this do I resist the temptation to you know start this side hustle or the, you know there's there's all these things coming and you really do have to deploy the one thing and this is the one thing I will always agree and quote Gary Vee on, we are so bad at patience. We are so bad at being still. We are so bad at asking for help, which is the one thing I come to you for 
all the time um, or letting people challenge us or listening to the other side, like all of those things will help you find what we were talking about earlier, that peace within when you know you're in your truth yeah, and it's, and it's your time. No, I, 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 I would agree. You just went through some decision making several you know weeks ago that I, you and I talked and I thought we had a decision and you were or not we had a decision but you were comfortable in the decision you were going to make and you left and you called three days later and you're like yeah I changed my mind and I thought oh my goodness but then the more you started to describe it to me the new decision felt more like your truth yeah than what we had previously talked and I got off the phone and I thought what were we thinking. <laughs> What were we thinking like f- several days ago about what we decided? You know, we're like high fiving each other and we're like, yeah, this is great. Go, Ray. And then you went and sat with that for a few days and you were like, yeah, no. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, because yeah, that's being, that's being in your truth right there because you thought, okay, I listened to my wife. I listened to a couple of friends. I listened to myself and then I got prayerful about it and thought about it. And there's where I need to be. Like, I loved that. And I thought that's real. That's where the real power is for things. And I I, think that's why you and I have to, it seems like it takes us longer to start things, but it's because we have to get in that intentional moment. Well, it takes me back to the story I'd said um, before that when someone had said they believed that um, I would be moving on to another job and I would be told when it was, and they thought it was going to be in a, in a foreign shore, I didn't know what to make of it. And then my wife rolled her eyes and it was a yeah, yada, yada, yada. We, did, we didn't know. But actually when it came around, it was like, wow, okay. Um, what I've learned in moving here and not having friends um, and family that I'd grown up with, but having to establish new connections and then the friends I had at um, home speak to them via technology, it forces you in, well, there's two things. You either just have no connections in America or you have to learn to be uncomfortable. Um, so, yeah, I have been blessed with the people I've come to know here, um, obviously, including yourself. But I would. what's the probability of us ever meeting other than this? It's, oh. It comes from me that you step out, but you've also got to be patient. My wife and I talk about this all the time is that she said, look, everyone's doing this personal branding stuff and yours is different and – I've spoken at several places. Um, I was recently down at IU and it was well, well received down there. And you could be doing this, you could be doing that. And for me, there's no race. I, I will know when the book is right. You know, mm-hmm. this is my second podcast guest interview. The first one was at my church. That's all I've done. I've not rushed to push it because the narrative I've got to get out there and scream at everyone is not. That's why when we talk, talked and discussed you know conversations with Anna is as absolutely real as it can be it is a conversation with Anna that's what right. I feel like we've been doing here it's just that simple it's not it's a complicated. phone call it's, it's a phone call. like a phone call we've it, it, it's not complicated but I think the pressure of trying to force things sometimes can look really uncomfortable sports is a great analogy if you see a player that just doesn't have the skill set but they're forcing it it never looks good Mm-hmm. Um, or someone forcing to be funny or someone forcing to be a leader. It should all come naturally. Right. And when it's not your truth, it takes a lot. Again, it goes back to that marathon mentality. Yes. It takes a lot of energy to go little ways when it's not. And then it's, you have to have the humility to, to stop running yes. or to change lanes or to step aside or to know those things. 
And I've done that in my life and have, it's different than self-doubt. It's just self-awareness to the point that you're like, this is not right for everybody in this moment. And I have to be the one in control of that. So that there's a lot there. Um, what's next? You've gotten through what months, I guess we're at two and a half months of being home with the family and got a semester done. Now we, we don't really know what's next outside of our homes, but what do you hope is next for you? Um, good question. Um, normally I'd be preparing to go back to England at this time. Yeah. For um, the summer, the whole the summer. summer. And um, so my father's going to be 80 in June. Um, and given this, this global epidemic, I can't go back and see him in person. Um, my, my siblings can't either. So we'll probably end up doing a celebration via zoom um, and connect. Um, I think, for my my wife and my children we're just we're just taking each day as it comes because trying to gaze too far in front actually causes some degree of anxiety that emanates from uncertainty and i think going back to your point and gary v's point of patience is patience is taking each day as it comes so it's tough for me as it will be for many people but that that's the best self-advice i think i could give myself to others is take each day as it comes but give everything you can in each day well, and we've put all this emphasis on you moving your family. Even if you were home, you wouldn't be able to see these friends and family. I mean, you probably no, would. I wouldn't be, from I, a distance, but yeah. I mean, now you're stuck in your house. It doesn't really matter which continent you're on. <laughs> you're so right. When people have said, "How, how have you? How have you coped with this?" I'm like, I feel embarrassed to think. Well, actually, nothing's kind of really changed. We we just right. have to be respectful of where we are at the moment. Um, but, you know, I would never have taken the journey over here and my wife wouldn't if we couldn't embrace. Let's take it as each day as it comes, because if we had thought too much about it, we would never have just uprooted our, our, our young family and moved over here. So we just had to say in this moment, we feel called to do it. Let's see where it goes. But again, that's strength of your faith and faith in one another. But I think what's great about this, and you and I have talked about it, is there's a lot of disruption coming. Yes. That's going to require us to be patient. But I think of the real power that people have during this time. And there is this exhaustion, right? There's all these things. Oh, you can learn a new language. You should be using this time, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I do think personally and professionally, these things that you have talked about in terms of understanding yourself and identifying and finding your truth are going to be very important for the changes that are coming when we do get back to whatever normal will be, because there are, it's like you and I talked earlier today, Twitter announced just from that permanent work from home. Yeah. And there are a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders, a lot of employees thinking, okay, the first one's gone. Like, what's that going to look like now? And there are a lot of people who thought work from home was going to be phenomenal that are like, hmm, yeah, (laughs) maybe this is not for me. But there's change coming, and we know that has to happen. Yeah. So how we respond to that, how we step up to that. And when we look and things you've talked about today, the context of the culture and outside of us, how that manifests within who we are. There's some real good things coming, I think. And I'm excited about some of these changes. Um, Change is always a little scary, but I think just having the patience 
to watch and figure out where we fit is going to be big for, for people professionally, for sure. And I think, you know, the funny thing is, and, and particularly in business environments, we've used and thrown around the term disruption, particularly in technology. Um, no one could have predicted it was going to be a disruption of our social mobility. Um, but in that, um, companies are having to work out what can be done remotely um, and it brings about a whole new era of trust. Can you trust your employees to work from home? Well, mm-hmm. most of the evidence at the moment suggests that productivity has gone up. So those that can work from home, productivity has gone up, which is fascinating because what that really means is the perception of the way we do things was thought to have been the best and there will most definitely have to be a return to some things but not everything will stay the same i have read though some of that productivity increase are people working harder and more at home to justify being at home like there are some added stresses and pressure that people are putting on themselves to make this work. So we still need to find, again, I mean, we still need to find our middle with it all. We still need to recalibrate and get some balance, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is because the, the biggest generation is the one that's ready for these changes, right? Yeah. The the older ones are the ones that have always been slow to believing that results only or work from home or remote would work for a meeting, right? Because there's always supposed to be a handshake yeah. or, you know, there's always, what is this always has looked like and there's been slow change, but it'll be interesting to see who comes out on top with this. Well, I think when the first motor vehicles, automobiles were on the road, um, you could only have them on the road if someone was walking in front of you with a flag to warn the horse and carriages. Haven't we come a long way? <laughs> I re- yeah, I think I saw something uh, a couple months ago about how the uh, typewriter, yeah. how that was going to destroy the American family. Yeah. And, you know, like- <laughs> <laughs> the home computer was, you know. Oh, well, you know. all of it. Yeah, the telephone. What was the telephone? Even iPads were. And they, they've now been reduced down to uh, a smartphone, cell phone. So everything changes. We, we're never quite sure about anything apart from change is inevitable. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I Change is the only constant. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, I can't tell you how full circle it feels to have you on a podcast and it's definitely not going to be the last one because conversations with Ray kind of what makes conversations with Anna possible. (laughs) So I'll definitely um, have you on again, but um, this is typically where I would say, here's where people can find you. Anyone can reach out and connect to me on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn if they want to, or via my uh, email address at Anderson university. Um, you know, that's if, if someone so feels, reach out. But um, other than that, then, you know, they can always contact me through you, whatever whatever suits. So, again, it's, it's a question of the golden ticket, isn't it? If people want to take their opportunity, they'll be able to get a hold of me. I just look forward to when the world can have access to how you're applying this personal discovery and personal brand and personal journey. It's going it's gonna to be exciting. And I know however that you come to whether that's a book or 
an audiobook or a podcast or whatever that looks like. I think anyone who's ever heard you speak, whether it's in person on a podcast or um, through the content that you share, always leaves feeling more empowered about figuring themselves out and where they fit. And that's definitely a gift that you have. So thank you for sharing that with us today. And I look forward to having you back many times. Um, So I appreciate you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Anna.